The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And there's lots going on this week in technology. The the airways are lit up with the uh, sale of Twitter to Elon Musk. So we thought we would explore all of that today. Look at who founded Twitter, one of the one of the co-founders, the man who got the original idea, Jack Dorsey. And then we will look at Twitter, how they make money, how they got where they are and maybe where they should go and how Twitter's influenced discourse on the internet. And if we have time, we'll uh, talk a bit about how you can apply the rules of critical thinking When you talk to someone on the internet, uh, maybe via Twitter or on Facebook, who you disagree with, how you can be agreeable, yet disagree. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Lewis in Erie. Dear Tech Talk, I I bought a brother's uh, laser printer about a year or so ago. And uh, when the starter cartridge ran out, I I ordered a third-party cartridge from Amazon, not an official brother Amazon. I didn't even know there was a brother printer. That's that's a brand name? Yeah, laser printer. Yeah, it's it's one of the off-brands. Definitely. It's an off-brand already. So it's funny to me that it has very strict rules about which ink cartridge you can use. Yeah, and so... I put the ink cartridge in, and and it, and it works. the the uh, The third party ink cartridge works perfectly, but it says replace toner, as though I hadn't even put in a new cartridge. Uh, should I be concerned, uh, Lewis and Erie? Well, Lewis, you can safely use your third party cartridge with no worries. Now, what printer companies do? This is the dirty little game they play. They sell you a super cheap inkjet printer which they make no money on, really. And then they set it up so you have to put their ink cartridges into the inkjet printer, and that's where they make the money, on the ink cartridges. And so what they try to do is force you to get their official ink cartridges, and they'll put a little chip in there. It looks for the chip. It looks it, There's some identifying feature, so they know that you haven't simply refilled an ink cartridge and you got a bootleg ink cartridge. Uh, uh, HP is uh, really known to do that too. But you can just ignore that error message and use your third-party cartridge. It's probably a third the price of the the ink. I mean, because these ink cartridges are really, really expensive. That's why you can buy an inkjet printer for under $100. That actually is quite a nice printer. 
because they're going to make it back on the ink cartridges, the ink cartridges that, that, that they sell you at $15 or $20 a pop. We got an email from Hawk in Bowie. Dear Doc and Andrew, I need your help with a very strange problem. I turned on the computer this morning and saw that somehow my Facebook page was in some other language, which I really don't even understand. And I can't figure out how to change it back to English because I can't read any of the menus. <laughs> Can you help me get my Facebook account back that, that, uh, that's to where it's using English? That is known as a tautology right there. You cannot, you can't fix it, something because you can't read the language, which will help you to fix it. Exactly. So. That is, a, that's a huge, a huge problem. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I've, I, I, you know, this has happened to me before I've switched languages and I've, I've had to get, I've it. never had that, that happen. I was surprised you it said was, it was a common thing. And I'm like, I've never heard of this happening, but there you go. Yeah. So you can, you, you know, there, there is a language setting on the Facebook uh, page and I mean, just a random click, you could, you could have hit it. Probably that's what you did one day when you're looking around. Now, now you can go to Facebook settings, privacy and get to the languages, but, but then of course you have to read the menus. So, so there is one way to, uh, to do it without having to walk down through a bunch of menus is go straight to the page that, uh, that, that, that allows you to change the language. And I'll give you the link to that page. Uh, what you want to do is you want to, you know, look, be logged into your Facebook account, and then you go to facebook.com, and then you go to slash settings with a question mark, and then you put tab equals language. Facebook.com slash settings question mark tab equals language. And that takes you straight to the language page. And on the far right side in the, um, at the top right line, uh, there's a drop down menu. You click on that, that drop down menu, even though, even though you can't read it, is a list of languages. And then you scroll down through the list of languages on that drop down menu. You pick English and then you click the blue button off on the right, which you can't know. You don't know what it reads, but it actually reads save. And then you save English. And at that point, you're back to English, and you don't have to walk down through all the menus. It's, yeah, that is, and this this would be a good time to remind people too, Doc, that uh, in case they didn't, you know, quickly write down that URL that you gave them, uh, it will be available on the Tech Talk Radio page at Stratford.edu. That's right, and you can just go to TechTalk.Stratford.edu. Now we go to we have an email from Alex in Richmond, dear uh, Tech Talk. I'd like to create my own high-performance USB drive. Now, I've heard it's difficult to buy one off the shelf. I've heard some comments from techies about that. Now, what is the issue uh, with these off-the-shelf USB drives, and how can I make my own? Well, Alex, you actually are on to something. Uh, manufacturers have done something pretty sneaky, and they don't tell you about it. And they made it difficult to, you know, to shop for a high-performance USB drive. Now, the reason is, is that a lot of the manufacturers have tried to save money by using a new technology for uh, saving the data on the hard drive called SMR. It's called shingled magnetic recording. Now, what that means is the actual... Um, um, place where the track where the data is stored they're overlapped slightly there's no gap between the tracks it's like it's like shingles on top of the house when they're overlapped with a with a slight uh, a slight overlap 
And that allows them to crowd more tracks on, on the disk so they can operate with fewer, uh, you know, with a smaller disk or fewer disk platens. And they save money. It's cheaper. Now, the problem is when you use the shingled magnetic recording, you've, you've got lower performance. The whole drive is slower. It's harder for, it's harder for, for, the, for you to extract the data. And what you want is conventional magnetic recording where each of the tracks are completely separated and there's a guard zone between them so they don't interfere with each other. That would be CMR. And what they do with these USB drives, in order to give you a cheap USB drive, they'll do shingled magnetic recording and they won't tell you. Is shingled magnetic – it sounds a little dangerous because if the tracks are overlapping a little, is there ever then some garbling of the information? Yeah, the, so they, they, it's a slight overlap. And so, yeah, and so it, it's harder to extract the data. That's why they're slower. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is harder to extract the data because of the overlap. And, and so they just – and so they're a little bit slower because there's more signal processing, but it just saves real estate. I, to me, it just seems like a ridiculous idea. But – the manufacturers, okay, so if their hard drive is $10 cheaper because they use shingled magnetic recording, maybe they'll sell more hard drives and then the user won't even pay attention. So what you could do if you really want to know what you're going to get, you just make your own USB hard drive. You, you buy the hard drive yourself and then you put it in a, uh, in a package, um, you know, that, in, a, in a USB package. So you can, you can buy a, a, you want to get a 3.5 inch SATA hard drive, S-A-T-A, -A, that's the that's the interface, set a hard drive, and, and you, you just buy that uh, directly uh, from the manufacturer. Now, the nice thing is, if you actually uh, look at Seagate, for instance, the Seagate hard drives, and you buy a hard drive from Seagate, you go back, you go to the Seagate um, website, and they'll, they have a table on there, and they'll tell you which one of their hard drives are SMR and which one of their hard drives are CMR. So you can look at a Seagate, you go to Seagate, and you can buy one of their hard drives at CMR directly. Now, there's also another, um, an, an, another company that, um, that, that makes uh, all CMR hard drives, Iron Wolf. Iron Wolf hard drives are used for a lot of high-end systems. So if you go and get an Iron Wolf hard drive, it's going to definitely be CMR. So what you can do... You can buy your hard drive and make certain it's a CMR because you're buying that hard drive. And then you can put it in your holder. Now, when you, you can go to Amazon, and there are a lot of, a lot of USB um, holders for 3.5-inch SATA hard drives. Now, the nice thing is if you're buying your own USB holder, you can decide what speed of USB port you want. You definitely would want to get a USB 3.0 at least. But you can also get the latest and greatest USB, which is 3.2, and it's a little bit faster. Of course, you've got to plug it into a device that will support 3.2. And then you can, uh, and then you just simply put the hard drive in that enclosure, and boom, you've got your own external hard drive that is high performance. Uh, that was actually a very clever question, Alex. That, however, assumes that you're a DIY kind of consumer. Is it also possible to just, you know, if you've got the money to spend, to buy, to make sure that the external hard drive you buy has CMR technology to begin yeah, with? Yeah, the problem is on these USB drives, they don't tell you. So, um, yeah, so I guess you could do research and try to find a USB drive where they told you that it was CMR. Okay. Uh, and, and the trouble is uh, they, they don't. Um, so that, it, it, they're basically playing this game with the consumers. 
Now, I suppose you could go to the manufacturer and try to do some research on it. Maybe go, you, I mean, maybe you could go to, uh, you know, go, go to your computer store and, and get assistance there and have them do the research for you. Yeah, that would be the, the other way to do it. Um, it, it's, it, I've made so many of these over the years. It just seems easy to me. Uh, we got an email from Frost in Fredericksburg. Dear Tech Talk, I just bought a smart TV for my living room, but the Wi-Fi is too weak to maintain a solid connection. Now, now there's a signal in the living room. I mean, my laptop works, my tablet works, but it just doesn't stream very well, and it, and and my my TV's intermittent. I've been doing some research of ways to boost the signal, and I keep reading about two ways to do it, Wi-Fi extender and mesh network. Now, I'm really confused about, um, about these, um, what that means, uh, you know, what the difference between them is. I, I really don't know which way to go. Uh, well, uh, you're right, Feroz, there are two ways to extend your Wi-Fi, either a Wi-Fi extender or a, a mesh network. Now, and they, and they are slightly different. Now, the Wi-Fi extender is basically a simple signal booster. So what you do, you get the Wi-Fi extender, and it has to receive sub-signal from, uh, from, uh, from the base unit, and then it will take and retransmit that signal uh, at, a, at a higher signal level. It'll just boost it. Now, the trouble with the Wi-Fi extender then, you have to rename that new signal with a new name. So if your baseline, say, network is, say, uh, home network, then you'd have to make, say, your Wi-Fi extender home network extended, just a different name. So, that, so now you've got two Wi-Fi um, networks in your house and it's just um, it's just kind of a pain in the neck because then you've got to be certain that you're always on the the best Wi-Fi connection and sometimes you'll your your device will lock onto the weaker one not the stronger one and you, then you've got to manually bring it back so Wi-Fi extenders typically work if you want to extend just to, to one room you want to extend one room and uh, and you don't mind and, that, and say, and in that room, you just are going to log on to the to the extended network name. That would be that would be okay. I've used Wi-Fi extenders over the years, and and they're they're okay, but they but they are are very sort of very limited in their utility. Now, yeah, and, the, and it makes sense though. That part will make sense if you have a device like a TV that you're not going to move, and if you know that it gets a good signal from the extender, it, it'll always you know go. It'll always choose that same one. Then once you've, you, right. you know, and and it, but if you're moving like an iPad from room to room, then it has to reconfigure, re, you know, find. And there's always the chance, yeah, and and you the chance that it picks the weaker one, and then you, yeah, so, so it so you can live a, with there, it, but you'd have to know that, that this is a thing to look out for. Yeah. Now the mesh network is really designed to be a dynamic network where you can walk around and you will, and these nodes are smart. They all link together in a mesh network. All of the nodes link together. There's a base station and you have satellites, but they all link together and talk back and forth. It's just one network name. And as you walk around the house, the mesh network is smart enough. It's always figuring out which node you should connect to. So if you say walk from the living room to the sunroom 
and there's another mesh out there, the mesh network is going to say, okay, at this point, let's switch to the Sunroom satellite because it's a better signal. And the mesh network automatically will keep you logged in to the, uh, to the strongest network. And so with the mesh network, which is very nice, you can, you, can, you can cover your whole house. The meshes have to be able to talk to each other, but you can just place meshes around the house and they all link up together as one integrated network. How now, big is each of those? Just, how big is each of those little units? They're they're not very large. It's you know just um, just like you know pr- probably like uh, um, you know an Amazon Alexa really. They're they're not very big. So they need to be plugged into a um, an outlet in, for starters. Yeah, they need to be plugged into the just to the power power it, outlet. Do they all. have the outlet kind of model? It just it would just be the thing that's attached to the outlet itself, or do you need to have a cord and a, you know and place it on a piece uh, of furniture one, or something? It, it, the ones I've seen mostly, you need a cord, and they just—I mean—they're—they're they're attractive little cylinders that that just sit on a coffee table or, or sit on an end table, mm-hmm. and um, and so you've got these meshes set up now. Uh, now here's the thing: you are then if you have a mesh network, you have to replace your Wi-Fi router because it's going to be—it's going to become the Wi-Fi router. So what you have to do with the mesh network, you have to plug it in. The, at the, the base station for the mesh, you have to plug into your to your a cable modem with an Ethernet cable. You plug it in, and then uh, and then what you can do, you can go into your uh, to to the router that came with your from your uh, cable company. Uh, you can turn off Wi-Fi on that, so you're not using the Wi-Fi from that router. So you can go in, log into that router, and you can. Uh, disable Wi-Fi so you're not having two Wi-Fi signals out there and then your Wi-Fi is then purely delivered on the mesh so there is like a home there's a home signal part yeah, of the mesh there's, there's a system home router. a home so router has, the, yeah the base station is, is a router yeah yeah and so you're replacing the router which means the mesh network's more expensive because you're replacing the whole router system now some meshes come with the cable modem built in so you so you just uh, you can get mesh networks that that's got the integrated cable modem built right into the base station, so then you can just hook that into to your uh, cable provider directly, and you just have to make certain that you have a cable modem that meets the specs of your internet service provider. So so that would work. So you can get the mesh networks with a cable modem or without a cable modem. But then it's just if you get it with a cable modem, it's more expensive. So mesh networks are more expensive, but they are rock solid and they are fast. So if you want to get the primo option, uh, you get the mesh network. Uh, if you want to go to the budget option, you could get the um, the extender. But um, I, I, I've actually used both at, at our Stratford campuses. We run mesh networks at the Stratford campuses so students can walk around the buildings and they always have Wi-Fi, and it's like the, the Wi-Fi, you know, the Wi-Fi network never leaves them. They can log on. Or they have to log on to the Wi-Fi, and they and they stay logged on as no matter where they walk in the building. So, we're we've you know I've been using both mesh as well as extenders. Listen, we love your email. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. We most certainly will. Now, don't let your mom hear this, but we're about to tell another success story about a guy who never finished college. What's college for anyway? Profiles in IT, next on Tech Talk Radio.
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University. Coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. I'm sorry, Doc. I jumped the gun on that one. Let's try That's it again. Okay. <laughs> and now it is yeah, time for... Big surprise. <laughs> Profiles in IT. Today, we're going to feature Jack Patrick Dorsey. Jack Dorsey is a technology entrepreneur best known as co-founder and former CEO of Twitter. Uh, He's also the founder and CEO of uh, Square, which has now been renamed Block. (laughs) It's a financial payment system. Now, Dorsey, uh, I mean, did you ever wonder where the name Twitter came up, came from? Uh, uh, Dorsey said Twitter stands for a short burst of inconsequential information, Hmm. (laughs) such as chirps from birds. So I guess a twit is like a tweet. I guess. Yeah. I'm not sure. I've never, you know, all the Twitter, I've heard that expression. I didn't really think that Twitter was a noun exactly on its own. Yeah, hmm. Twitter. I, look that uh, up. I guess a, I guess a, Twitter. Uh, it, it, he liked the word Twitter because uh, he was thinking short bursts of inconsequential information. This is a quote from Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter. Now, Dorsey was born November nineteenth, nineteen seventy six, in St. Louis, Missouri. He attended Catholic Bishop DuBourg High School. Now, his younger days, Dorsey worked occasionally as a fashion model. And as a massage therapist, I mean, he had a very colorful lifetime in the beginning. By age 14, Dorsey had become very interested in dispatch routing, uh, like for taxi cabs. And, uh, and he wrote some open source software in the area of dispatch log- logistics, where uh, his software was open source. And it's still used by many cab companies to, to manage their their dispatching logistics. You know who who you're going to dispatch here and where to you know to optimize the um, the arrival times. 
So since uh, it's open source, we're to assume he never made any money on that, the 14-year-old? I didn't make any money. He was just interested in the problem. Wow. And uh, that's where he got, uh, you know, that's where he honed his skills on, pro his programming skills at, at, at age 14. I mean, the way to learn how to program is just to program. And, and, and I guess you could say he went to school on programming by writing this open source code. Now, he attended the University of Missouri at Rolla, Missouri, uh, for two years plus, and then he decided to transfer to New York University. So he, he moved to New York, went to NYU, but he dropped out in 1999, just one semester short of graduating. So he never got a bachelor's degree. He was close, but no cigar. In, uh, in 2000, Dorsey uh, said, hey, you know, that dispatch software, that kind of interesting. Why don't I start a company uh, using the SAF, the dispatch software that I created earlier. So he created a company built around that open source dispatch software. Uh, and, and it was used to, you know, to dispatch couriers, taxis, emergency services from the web. Uh, you know, he, he tried to make money at that back in 2000. And then while he was actually doing this, uh, he, uh, you know, trying to launch this dispatch dispatch software company, he, uh, he was inspired by the AOL Instant Messenger. He, um, he looked at the AOL Instant Messenger and he says, wow, that is really interesting. And then he got the idea of creating a time status short message communication service, sort of inspired by the AOL Instant Messenger. Now, he already had the, the core software for sending out messaging. So he figured he could adapt his taxicab dis dispatching software and turn it into kind of a message communication software, and maybe it would be an interesting service. So he pitched the idea to Odeo, which was a, a company that, um, that Biz Stone had started, and, and they kind of liked the idea. So they said, okay, let's give it a shot. So Dorsey and Biz Stone decided to use SMS texting, text messaging, as an idea for the uh, status message. So they built a prototype of Twitter that would send out these uh, SMS messages, uh, you know, to, to whoever signed up uh, to, you know, to follow you. They, they built that prototype for Twitter. That was a prototype for Twitter in about two weeks because he was simply adapting his dispatching software that he already had in place. Now, <clears throat> they tested it out on the ODO users, and, uh, and the ODO users loved it. So the test case was that this new Twitter, Twitter idea had legs, so uh, Evan Williams, the ODO co-founder, decided to provi provide angel financing for this new company. So um, Williams, Biz Williams, Stone, Noah Glass uh, co-founded, uh, along with Dorsey, they co-founded the Obvious Corporation, which I'd never heard of before, <laughs> Obvious cor Corporation. And that quickly was spun off into Twitter, Inc. And Dorsey was selected as the chief executive officer. Now, as CEO, Dorsey saw the startup through two rounds of venture VC funding. 
and the, the service just began to grow in popularity. Now, Dorsey never focused on revenue. His top priority was uptime. He focused on uptime so that it would always be up and never fail. He had three guiding principles in designing Twitter. He wanted simplicity. He wanted constraints. He didn't want to just add all of features on that weren't needed. And he wanted to have what he called craftsmanship, elegance in the back-end coding. Uh, in 2008, uh, Williams took over as CEO and Dorsey became chairman of the board. Now, uh, I mean, Dorsey did a great job at building it up to 2008, but then his, uh, his, his erratic lifestyle seemed to be getting in the way. He was, uh, he was spending too much time <laughs> on yoga and fashion design. <laughs> and, the, and the stockholders of Twitter, the board of Twitter, said, you know, maybe you shouldn't be the CEO because you're never around. You're working on too much yoga and fashion design. And so he went back to be chairman of the board. Now, he was, he was on the board, but not CEO for a while. Then they brought him back as the executive chairman in 2011. Uh, uh, they, they, he returned to Twitter as executive chairman after Dick Costello replaced Williams as CEO. Now, Costello resigned as CEO, and then in 2015, and Dorsey took it back over again. And Dorsey was named permanent CEO on October 5th, 2015. Now, his goal was to try to, you know, try to build a business. See, the trouble is Twitter went public, but it, it never really grew in valuation much because they, they weren't growing many users. They didn't have much engagement. So they were trying to uh, address that. Now, Dorsey announced in 2016 that they wouldn't count photos or links in the 140-character limit, and that would free up more space for people to write stuff. They thought that would be appealing to the younger, younger crowd, if you could put, a, put in a picture. Uh, in 2018, Dorsey announced an improved verification system so they could verify who the, who the, who the Twitter account holder was. That, that was. that was always an issue. Now, Dorsey did not like uh, Twitter being used as a political platform. He, he, he liked it as a, he wanted it to be a town square for conversation. He, he didn't like the idea that it was, uh, that it was you know, that, that it was getting pulled into politics. So in November 22nd of 2019, he announced that they would ban all political advertising on Twitter. And this applied globally to all political campaigns. He was trying to keep the platform agnostic. Uh, now, unfortunately, because of the way that they moderated content, it was not necessarily agnostic in general, but that was his desire. In October 2020, Dorsey was one of the several tech firms that was subpoenaed by the U.S. Senate about the legal immunity that tech platforms received under Section 230 of the Communications Act. Uh, one, one, of the issue, one of the issues is there is that uh, if uh, a social media platform is viewed as agnostic, they can't be responsible for the content that's on it, and so they are immune from being sued. And that was laid out in Section 230 of the Communications Act. 
And people are questioning whether they're actually an agnostic platform because it looks to me like they're actually editing content uh, by uh, by man by uh, by moderating content. Therefore, they they might be exempt from Section 230. And Congress wanted to explore that. Now, in addition to his Twitter activity, uh, he also was involved in a in the development of a um, of another company. Uh, uh, he. He started another company called Square with Jim McKelsey in May of 2010. Now that was a small shaped device that you attach to a mobile device via the, uh, the the headphone jack, and so you could you could plug this Square device into your into your smartphone back then, and then you could scan a uh, and then you could you could scan a credit card through it, and then you and then you could send paperless receipts via text message or email to to clients. And, and that was very successful because a lot of small businesses wanted to be able to process credit cards, you know, right at the table or, or right uh, or anywhere in the store. That was, that was really a, a, good, uh, a good idea. The company grew from 10 employees in uh, 2009 to over 100 by 2011. Now, Square's office and markets is on Market Street in San Francisco. Uh, by September of 2012, Insider Magazine valued Square at 3.2 billion. Now, Square filed for a C, for an IPO in uh, October 14, 2015. As of that date, Dorsey owned 24% of the company. On uh, March 2020, FDIC allowed Square to open a bank and announced plans to notch the Square Financial Services in 2021. Uh, now, in 2012, Dorsey moved to the Seacliff neighborhood of San Francisco. He walks five miles to work each morning. Five miles. He calls it very clearing time. Uh, he has a strict regimen. He uh, eats one meal a day, fasts the rest of the day, and he takes two ice baths each day. You got. You got to wonder what how, what that's like. I don't know. <laughs> I tough. really don't understand. And what the benefit that. is, but wow! I mean, and how much ice do you need to make to take a bath? To take a bath in it? Yeah, he. Yeah, I mean, it, it, more recently he changed the the, the company name from uh, from Square to Block, and and he, and he calls himself the Chief Blockhead. <laughs> Yeah, and block too. It doesn't seem, you know, block has a negative connotations. I'm blocking you yeah, from doing I, something. Yeah, I like the name Square. Yeah, it made more sense. Made more I sense to me. I thought it made me, more but. sense. In uh, in April of 2020, he announced that he'd move one billion of his equity in Square to start a small to start small LLC, which was which was a charitable organization to help people, you know. Get a you know deal with the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Now in twenty in two thousand and eight he was named the MIT Technology Review TR thirty five one of the top innovators in the world under age thirty five. In twenty twelve the Wall Street Journal gave him Innovator of the Year award. Now Dorsey uh, announced his the departure role from uh, the as Twitter CEO on November 29th, twenty twenty one. He was replaced by the former CTO, Parang Agri uh, Chief Technology Officer, Parang Agri Agrawal, who took over as CEO immediately. Now, Dorsey will continue to lead as CEO of Block uh, Technology, and and I and I think now we know sort of the inside story of why he 
why he moved on. He just was, he didn't like the direction the company was going. He felt that the, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the company has lost its focus as a, as a town square and, and it was being really driven by the board. Uh, in April of 2021, Musk offered to buy Twitter for $44 billion, and I'm going to get more into that detail later. Now, if that deal goes through, Dorsey will make nearly $1 billion out of the transaction because he owns 2.4% of Twitter. Uh, and we now know that Jack Dorsey had been talking with Elon Musk and really endured, endorsed this takeover as probably the best way to, um, to save Twitter. So there you go. This is kind of an uh, everything you'd want to know about Jack Dorsey, who's really a nonconformist and who managed to start two very, very successful companies, Twitter and then Block. So, of course, uh, all this talk about Twitter is very much in the news this week, and it brings up a very important question. What constitutes free speech in a free society? And we'll get Doc's take on this in a moment. So pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair as we join Doc for his observations from the Faculty Lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. We've heard a lot about First Amendment rights as they talk about content moderation and misinformation. But what I'd like to talk about, First Amendment versus censorship. Now, the now-retired U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, in an opinion on a 2017 First Amendment case, said that the cyber age is a revolution of historic proportions he noted that we cannot appreciate its full dimensions and its vast potential to alter how we think, 
how we express ourselves, and how we define who we want to be. Kennedy said cyberspace and social media in particular are among the most important places for the exchange of views. He compared the internet to a public forum akin to a public street or a park. And you've heard the same sentiments expressed by Elon Musk, by the way. Justice Kennedy believed that the public forum doctrine should not remain frozen in time, limited to protecting public squares and public parks, while new forums for public debate go unprotected, like online. This battleground raises serious concerns about the future of free speech, including attempts at censorship by government actors critical of comments on social media, shifting standards of private platforms to censor online expression, and the rise of hate and extremist speech in the digital world. Now, we have to look at three areas, according to Justice Kennedy. Government blocking. When government officials block or remove critical comments online, this violates core First Amendment principles that individuals have the right to criticize government officials. So this is, we need to be very careful, for instance, of this new governance committee for misinformation. It's walking into, I believe, dangerous territory of government blockage and government censorship. And then we have private censorship. Now, much of the censorship on social media does not mandate, does not emanate directly from the government. Although we have seen coordination between social media platforms and government. Often the censorship comes from social media companies that police content according to their own terms of limit. Like, for instance, if, if they don't agree with the political views of a particular person who's making a comment, they just might choose to block it or cancel their account. And, well, and they do that. I mean, look at the case of the, uh, of the Hunter Biden uh, laptop right in the middle of the election. That was legitimate news but anybody that mentioned it uh, on Twitter or on Facebook, their accounts were blocked. So that would be a case of censorship to try to keep information out of the, uh, out of the public square. And do these activities stifle free speech? I would say they do. But are they really, are they really able to regulate that? Now, Congress does have a certain degree of regulation ability with this private censorship action, because there is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 that actually um, exempted uh, platforms, social media platforms, that are from, uh, from any sort of legal liability for things that are set on the platform, because they were saying that these are simply platforms and they're not actually, and they're not editing the com content, they're just hosting the content. And so all of our social media platforms are exempt from lawsuits because of Section 230. But the question is, if they come in and censor it, are they really now an agnostic platform or are they editing the content just like a newspaper editor does? And would that void Section 230? That's what Congress is looking at. Then the third area that must be looked at, according to Justice Kennedy, is policing hate-filled content. Now, there are cases where there are things that just in general 
in general, we don't want to see in the in the public discourse. And uh, there are certain things that you that we even in the public square, like you're you're not allowed to do, like you can't yell fire in a theater. So there are boundaries or guide rails uh, that that limit to what you can say in the in the um, in, in the public square in the public forum even if it's an online forum so how do you define those guardrails <clears throat> and a lot of these platforms are saying well say we we think that the say referencing the hunter buyers biden story that's like hate hate filled content so we we can't have it and so they would just they would apply that and actually it was an improper application so i think what we have to do is look very carefully at these platforms to make certain that we can continue to have dialogue be, uh, that honors the First Amendment rights, treat them as a public square, and that we should stay away from this uh, censorship problem. Now, now, in comes Elon Musk, and as we know, he just you know announced that he's going to buy Twitter for $44 billion dollars. And, uh -huh. and and in a way, uh, we're we're going to talk about this in in, in depth and in, in, as we continue right now. But mm -hmm. I, I wanted to say that what I think I'm seeing here is a fusing of both ideas: the idea that it's public square, but it's also a private corporation and really private. If if Musk has his way, he wants to you know take it private and 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 get rid of the stockholder um, uh, participation in that company. Um, and then you know he will make as a private entity a decision to run it as a public square. So let's let's get into uh, how he's uh, buying Twitter. Go ahead, Doc. Yeah. So so Elon Musk was actually, and it, he's you don't know if he's a Republican or a Democrat. I, I think he is a libertarian. Uh, he's trying to work for the good of mankind in almost every e effort he did, and he was quite upset with the approach that Silicon Valley has taken at censoring content, it at the expense of of one group over another. He was very upset with that because he says, look, if we don't have a public square where there can be discourse, we're jeopardizing the very foundation of democracy. So he and Justice Kennedy are right on the same, right on the same wavelength. And he felt that Twitter had lost its way. So he decided to take Twitter private. And he bought it, uh, and he made an offer for forty-four billion dollars, uh, which was um, which was at the uh, a share price of fifty-four dollars a share, and that was a thirty-eight percent premium uh, over the price of the stock as it closed on April first, before he got he got involved with it. So he, he was giving the Twitter people really a good a good offer. Uh, now the reason he did that, and he's and he's talked about it quite. He he said Twitter is a uh, is a it, it, it's a public square, and um, and and he felt that if we if we can't have public discourse, how how can you have a public square? So let, if I go back to that one example, say the uh, Hunter Biden laptop. Now maybe people think that that's just a red herring. It wasn't really relevant to the election. That's fine. But you could have that conversation. So his feeling is that you have the Hunter Biden laptop information there, and people could then debate. Was this good? Was this bad? How should we look at it? You could actually have an honest conversation. But if you simply censor the information, you don't, you don't have a conversation. So 
if you're talking to people and if anybody who disagrees with you is cut off from the public square, <laughs> you have no debate. And that, that was really Elon Musk's point. So he actually, uh, uh, we now know um, that Jack Dorsey had been talking to him and others out in Silicon Valley had been talking to him because there are some, uh, I mean, there are a lot of folks in Silicon Valley that are basically libertarian. They'd been talking about him, about how Twitter had become corrupted. And so he's been thinking about buying it. So he bought it really, not necessarily to make money. I don't know if he's going to make money on this deal. He decided to buy it to make it more even-handed. Now, now, Twitter shareholders still have to approve the deal. Initially, the board was going to be was absolutely against it. They didn't want to they didn't want to let him come in because they they didn't they they were really so focused on the way they'd been running Twitter. But eventually, I think the shareholders says, "Look, this is a good deal. Uh, take it." So the board decided to take it. Now he's he has um, he's he's lined up financing for it. And I basically, I think he's leveraging a lot of his, uh, the financing is basically leveraged by a lot of his Tesla stock. I'm actually surprised to hear that, Doc. You feel a guy like that has so much money. You feel he just had a random $44 billion lying around anyway, and he said, oh, wait, why don't I put it in here? I'm really surprised he actually has to leverage something to make this purchase. You know, he, he, he doesn't have a lot of cash. He's all, he's all tied up in equity yeah, in his but this, companies. This is a, well, that's true. That's true of a lot of uh, what we call ultra-wealthy people. Well, see, here's – I mean, this is, this is the thing that tees people up. If you don't ever cash out your equity, you don't pay capital gains on it. So, so, uh, so anytime he takes out cash, he's got to pay a lot of taxes. So he, he did actually cash in some of his tes- Tesla stock last year, and he had to uh, – $10 billion. You know, a ten billion dollar yeah, tax, and, and, he, and he had to pay a lot of taxes yeah, on it. Yeah. So, so yeah. So he tends to, he tends to just leave it in there. But he had to he leveraged. See, by leveraging the Tesla stock rather than selling it to raise the cash, he doesn't have to pay taxes. So he just leaves it there, and he and he basically just pays interest on the on the money. So he's lined it up. He said he's got a CEO, a new CEO lined up to take over the take over the company. He's gonna he's gonna. You know he's going to cut the salaries of the board of trustee board of directors of Twitter, because uh, you know he doesn't think much of them. He said he's going to pay them zero. He's going to he's going to cut the salaries of the um, you know of the executives there at Twitter. Like for instance, the chief censor. This is the Twitter lawyer. Uh, this woman makes seventeen million dollars every year, and she's the one that decided to block the Hunter Biden story. And, and, and she was the one that was in tears when she heard that uh, Elon Musk was going to buy the company. So I'm thinking that uh, this $17 million chief lawyer may may be, uh, may be on the chopping block, if, if, if you can well, think that. Well, you know, she's probably put some of that into her 401k, so I'm not going to worry too much about her future. And, she, and she'll make, yeah. she'll make uh, $12 million at, at severance when they're gone. He's and she'll replace- write a book. And she'll write a book. And she'll write a book. And <laughs> That's my guess. So the, the other thing is, uh, you know, like the CEO is going to be replaced. Uh, he'll he's going to he's got a severance package of almost forty four million. So so they're all going to do well. Now I think, you know, the long play. I think uh, what um, what what Elon Musk thinks is if you actually can create a site that has real dialogue where people are actually debating issues, not screaming at each other, but actually, and have differing viewpoints, 
and there's actually a conversation in a debate. He believes that there will be more engagement on the website. And he thinks that because there will be more engagement on the website, <coughs> Twitter will become more profitable because you'll be on the website longer and they'll make more money on their ads. So th does that mean sort of moderating not so much for content but for tone? Is that possible? Yeah, that, I think that's exactly what they're going to do. wonder if that's what they, they'll they, be they focusing. Wanna, mm -hmm. They want to, uh, you know, so you can't uh, – you, you can engage in debate, but then you just can't yell at people and use profanity and threaten them, but you can debate the issue. So I think they're, 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 they're going to set, set, try to set up a tone for debate and, and, for, and for conversation. There, I, mean, I mean, the thing is, when I'm, like, when, when I'm talking to someone and I absolutely disagree with them, as soon as they state their position, I don't say, that is just stupid. How could you have that idea? You're just, you got rocks in your head. No, I say, that's an interesting position. How did you arrive at that position? And I ask them questions. What, what, what data did you use? What, what were your sources? Uh, how did you analyze it? How did you come to that conclusion? And I don't actually argue with them at all. And I'm telling you, if I'm talking to somebody who has really a, an ill-formed uh, opinion about something because they don't have a clear set of data. When I talk to them, just by asking questions and asking them where they got their conclusion, where they got their data, what data was based on, what were the sources of the data, and I go back through uh, a thought process, frequently they decide, well, maybe I could rethink this position because you force them to think through their thought process. And a lot of people in these, these Twitter wars, they don't think through their positions. <laughs> they gotcha. just say, well, what I believe is right and what you believe is wrong. And so I think it could actually, I think he could teach us, if it's done right, how to debate properly. Now, do you have a fair amount of experience in this sort of method, the Socratic method of engaging with people on, 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 the, uh, on social media? Because I'm wondering, what is the percentage of people who, you know, react in a way that you would like in which they actually answer your questions and begin to try to explain how they arrive? So, so what, what happens is that if you engage someone in this fashion, you are teaching them by... by you actually model the process by how you operate. So just by engaging, like I, I was, you know, I mean, I, I had an interesting case. I, I was out in, in, in Flagstaff, Arizona, getting my hair cut. And I was talking to this uh, barber. And I mean, uh, she, she and I disagreed on everything. But then I started asking her, you know, where she got her opinion, where she did this and that. And, and then I eventually, uh, I started teaching her about the idea of critical thinking and, and how you think through a problem you've never heard before and how you approach it through critical thinking. And we had the best conversation. And, and she said, you know, I have never thought about this th these things before. And we ended up having the most enlightened conversation. And, and we, did, we didn't have an argument at all uh, because we were actually talking about substantial things. So Socrates taught this to the youth of, uh, of Athens back in, you know, 2,500 years ago. He just asked them questions. And, and, and if you ask questions, you walk people through the, 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 the eight elements of critical thinking, which is what's the purpose of the thinking? 
What's the question of hand? What data do you have? Is the data broadly sourced or is it is biased data? What's the quality of the data? Then what model do you use to analyze the data? And there's another thing in there. What's your uh, what's your um, <clears throat> perception? What how are you looking at it? Are you looking at it through your eyes, through the eyes of another? Do you have breadth in, in how you look at it? And and simply by asking questions, you can walk people through the eight elements of critical thinking and, and they become better thinkers. So you're thinking about thinking. Now, to a scientist, those eight elements of critical thinking, they call the scientific method. <laughs> so critical thinking is the scientific method applied to just everyday thinking. Now, what is bad is when people say, what I believe is the truth and everybody else is wrong. And so if you have two people who only look at the problem or the thing through their own eyes and they have the truth and you got somebody else who looks at it only through their eyes and they think they have the truth and they just scream at each other, you never arrive at any kind of civil discourse. And that's what I hear on TV. I hear these <laughs> commentators screaming at each other and never looking at the problem through the eyes of the other person. And so I don't see a lot of critical thinking on, in our public square. I don't either, but I'm wondering, I mean, how, what percentage of humanity is actually interested in critical thinking, Doc? I think they are. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I hope mean, you're right. I'll tell you that. No, I, I, <laughs> I think they are because it's, it's so non-confrontational. When, when I get in an argument, I, a debate with somebody, it's so non-confrontational. I just ask questions. I mean, I've been doing this in the classroom for for a long time. I mean, and, um, you know, and it's the ability to, to do critical thinking is really important. Oh, there's another thing about this critical thing. You know, I said, Brett, you can look at a problem from different perspectives. That is the core skill required for innovation. So if you're confronted with some technical problem that you've never understood before, uh, you, if you look at it through another direction, you, you get another idea. Are we about ready to run out of time Yes, here? we are, Doc. Oh, my goodness. Listen, we love all your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. And check out all of our programs at uh, www.stratford.edu. And tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.